0: I'm Gabe Oatley, the co host of Poll Quotes.
1: And I'm Andrew Oliphant, one of the guest hosts for Poll Quotes, the podcast where we take you behind the scenes of Canada's top long form stories.
0: Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. (laughs) Who did you chat with this week?
1: Uh, Yeah, I spoke with Alex Boyd, who's the Calgary beat reporter for the Toronto Star.
0: Amazing. Alex is so awesome. Yeah. Uh, What would you want to chat with her about this week?
1: Well, last month, she actually published a three part series in the Star about the global vaccine rollout and vaccine inequality. Um, Yeah, she actually went to Angola and South Africa for some of the reporting. And, you know, there was so much conversation at the beginning of the pandemic, how we're kind of in this global community and that everyone deserves a shot.
0: Hmm. Sounds like a really powerful story. Um, I also gather you were keen to chat with her a bit about her process, like how she was actually able to tell such a detailed feature story um, on a topic like vaccine inequality that was kind of changing uh, day by day as things were shifting with COVID.
1: Yeah, you know, she wanted to go to Guatemala for this story, but uh, with the changing situation with Omicron, she couldn't actually make it. (laughs) Um, She went to Namibia on her trip, but didn't use any of that reporting. And she only actually had two days notice to go to Angola (laughs) um, for this. And I also got some great insights into the role of her translator, Domingos, while she was in Angola as well.
0: Andrew, this sounds like such a great interview for your first ep guest hosting pull quotes. I love it. Uh, Let's play the thing.
1: Let's do it. Hi, Alex. Thanks so much for taking the time to join our podcast today.
2: Thanks, Andrew. I appreciate you having me.
1: So I wanted to begin by looking at Dose of Desperation, part one of your series, Fighting for a Shot. Um, You followed a shipment of AstraZeneca vaccines from an airport runway in Angola, where the vaccines were first delivered, to a vaccine distribution center in the capital, to a stadium where people lined up to get their shots. How did you decide to use this as a way into the greater conversation of global vaccine distribution?
2: Well, I, I, I'd, I'd like to say that this particular shipment, um, you know, was just a, an inspiration to uh, structure a story around it. But I, I must admit that part of this was just logistical. Um, you know, I'd been talking to UNICEF uh, for months, trying to figure out whether it would be possible to see one of these shipments. Um, it, it turned out to be more challenging than I expected. Just logistically, um, you know, they weren't always sure when they were sending shipments or how that was gonna go or whether the country receiving it would be receptive to a reporter. Uh, And so it wasn't immediately apparent whether this would be possible and so I ended up getting about two days notice that I was able to go to Angola um, and I said sure yeah hopped on a plane off I went Um, and and so I felt really lucky to be able to be on the ground when a Canadian shipment arrived Um, I think uh, a big part of the story is is the issue around donations are they getting to people that need them Um, are they going in big enough numbers and so it ended up being you know a, a good way to kind of structure the story in terms of um, taking a reader along with this particular shipment. Um, but like I say, part of this was just uh, logistically, uh, it ended up kind of uh, being how this reporting trip uh, ended up being working
1: out. So were there any other contenders for a story arc that you didn't go with?
0: Hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, a I think, a really good question, because I think... There's a low hanging fruit uh, story structure here, I think, in which uh, a Western reporter would go out and find, you know, someone who had a, a really awful story of not being able to get a vaccine, who is very uh, personally affected by the pandemic and really hung the story on the emotion of that. And to be clear, you know, I, I have so much empathy who are in that position, who haven't been able to get vaccines. So I'm in no way belittling that experience. But I think it's very common for Western reporters to really fall into that trope of these countries kind of being, uh, you know, sad and, and not as lucky as us. And, oh, isn't that too bad? And, and readers, I think that and the World Vision commercial starts playing in their head and they forget that these are real places with, um, you know, real people who are struggling to solve these issues. And so it was really important to us not to fall into that trope of, of just kind of an unfortunate country that, you know, doesn't have the riches that Canada does. And so we really wanted to put the emphasis on the people who were working really hard to solve this problem to get vaccines out. Um, and, and we're really frankly, and at least in the case of Angola, doing a very good job of it. And so part of this was we wanted a structure that would allow us to showcase the work being done, the solutions being found, um, and try to portray Angola as a real place and and try to, you know, take readers along with us.
1: Yeah, maybe could you talk about that decision, I guess, with respect to framing um, of how COVID-19 is impacting Africa? I know, like, there's a lot of talk on how Western media outlets frame african nations as like struggling or impoverished um mm-hmm. so yeah maybe can you talk about any other decisions you made with respect to how african nations are framed in your story
2: yeah like I mean, it's challenging because you know african nations don't have um you know the the resources and uh, the economy, frankly, um, that a country like Canada does. But I think where Western media can fall short is presenting that um in a vacuum or just making it uh seem like a charity case like i think a lot of the focus around donations um has been oh isn't it nice that canada is helping and we should help more and, and this is just a, a warm um you know warm fuzzy thing that we're doing to help our neighbors uh in the rest of the world but i mean the fact that it is a charitable system that countries like angola are dependent on countries like canada for donations is a choice. It, it didn't have to be that way. Um, the reason that they're kind of left waiting for what are essentially, you know, table scraps from the global community is that they were left out of mechanisms that would have allowed them to, you know, purchase some of their own, would have allowed Africa to make some of their own. And so the fact that they're left dependent, I mean, it's, it's not a new story. It kind of, you know, is built on the bones of, of history and of colonialism, of, of, you know, centuries of history of our world. But just to present it as a isn't this a nice thing that Canada is doing really is not it's it's just showing one tiny piece of a much larger story.
1: Yeah. And I know in your third part, you use some pretty significant historical moments of um, vaccines. Uh, You looked at Napoleon Mm -hmm. vaccinating his children for smallpox. You looked at the polio vaccine. So I guess what was kind of the reasoning behind using these historical examples in your piece?
2: I mean, I always love me a historical example. I'll I'll put a historical example into anything. But I I do think beyond just myself finding it interesting, I I do think there was a real purpose here because you know, one of the things when I look back at the pandemic, there's a few things that, you know, just kind of lodge in your brain and you end up thinking about for weeks afterwards. And one of the things that someone said to me a few weeks ago was how much she hates the word unprecedented when it a- applies to the pandemic. And because we've heard that constantly, you know, this unprecedented virus, this unprecedented pandemic. And yeah, COVID is new. We're, we're kind of trying to find new ways to fight it. But this idea of a, a pandemic that is, you know, swept the world, that has, drawn lines between, you know, the haves and the have nots, that's a not a new thing. And so when we allow leaders to use words like unprecedented, it's kind of adding them a blank check to be like, well, we don't know what to do. This is unprecedented. We've never done this before. And, and really, when you look at history, there are examples of leaders Uh, meeting these pandemics, making decisions about vaccination, uh, using vaccines in Napoleon's case, uh, you know, for arguably political reasons. And so, you know, history gives us these, uh, you know, clues to how it might have gone differently, how we might have expected this to go. But if you say unprecedented, it just it wipes it wipes the slate clean.
1: Um, I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about your thinking in respect to the tone of the piece Um, for instance in uh, the second part there's a line about the Canadian government saying we're all in this together and you say more than two years later that feels less like a reassurance and more like a threat Um, can you talk about any decisions you made about having your own voice in this story
2: Um, you know I do think I, I write a little bit in this story with my own voice. I mean, a little bit, I don't want to say glib, but I, I do, I think, inject a little bit of, of personality into this. But I would draw a line between what I've done and opinion. Uh, for example, I mean, I wrote about vaccines for over a year. Um, I spent months on this project. And so... Um, I think it's it's not necessarily me, you know, having an opinion or, um, you know, trying to take the government to task. A line like that, as as flip as it may feel, is rooted in months of research and uh, interviews and talking to people who really know um, how the pandemic is unfolding and, and the fact that, you know, Canada hasn't done um, what it arguably uh, owes to the rest of the, the world. And so, I mean, we talk a lot about this idea of being impartial and. To me, being impartial is not, uh, you know, presenting both sides. You know, oh, you know, Canada tried to do a thing good for Canada, but these people say Canada didn't do enough. Like, it's it's not my job necessarily to present those as two equal uh, arguments. My job is to uh, be impartial in my process and interrogate both of those arguments, uh, present them both, or uh, look at them fairly, investigate them fairly, and then when you come to the end, I think it's fair to say, okay, I've talked to all these people, I've. Heard heard both sides. Um, and I have come to the conclusion that Canada has not done what it said it would do and what critics say it should be doing. And so I think I think a line like that um, is is fair, honest, uh, unbiased reporting because I did hear both sides.
1: Yeah, definitely. And um... Yeah. And in that part, too, I know you used Afrogen, the vaccine lab in Cape Town, to kind of begin the the narrative for that part. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just kind of curious how you kind of gained access to that lab, considering it is kind of a, a laboratory where they produce vaccines.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And, and to their credit, um, Afrogen was pretty open. Um uh, Petro, the head of Afrogin, uh actually does all her own media uh, herself. She prides herself on that. She's an incredibly busy person. I don't know how she does it, but um, I think they're aware that they need to have uh, the world on their side or it would behoove them to have people know what they're doing. You know, Canada, for example, has given them $15 million. And so a lot of different governments and players have really invested in what they're doing. Um, it was not particularly challenging to get access at that point. Uh, vaccine uh, manufacturing facilities, once they're sealed, they're very, very paranoid about uh, contaminants entering and kind of mucking up what they're doing. And of course, one of the one of the dirtiest things you can let into your lab is humans. And so typically, once a vaccine facility is sealed, uh, there's very little opportunity for visitation. But when we were there, it was actually just weeks before their HVAC system um, would have been signed off on, and then the whole thing would have been sealed. Uh, and so at that point, uh, it wasn't too challenging, though I, I would imagine that has changed since then.
1: Yeah, and I guess what was your process in using that, like the lab, in order to frame this particular part about intellectual property?
2: There was a yeah a couple things at play there. Um, the first one was that I was terrified that no one was ever going to read a story about intellectual property. I was intimidated to learn about intellectual property initially because it sounds very boring and very complicated. Um, it's really not, though. I mean, it, it really is the story of our world and, and medicine access and how we decide who gets uh, medicine and who doesn't. It, it really, I found it really fascinating. Um, but what they're doing is really looking to upend some of these systems. And so, So my role, my intent with them is to kind of use them as example of a company really trying to push through some of these barriers when it comes to intellectual property. Um, But also, you know, going back to this idea of the tropes that Western reporters rely on when they go to other countries, I thought it was really cool to focus on a company that is is saying, you know what? You can keep your charity. We are going to try to flip the script here, uh, and we're going to make our own vaccine. We're not going to wait for you know countries to you know give us their scraps. We're going to do it do it for ourselves. And so, putting the focus um, on on a company and and some individuals who are really trying to fix the core problem here, um, to me that was really interesting.
1: And I'm curious about the prep before you went to. Um, Angola and South Africa. I know you mentioned that it was like a months long process before you even uh, arrived. So maybe first, if you could maybe take me through your pitching process for this story.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It was an unusual pitching process. I, I'm definitely a preparer. Like when I'm able to, I love doing a lot of pre-reporting, a lot of research in advance so that when I go into a new situation, I have a pretty good sense of what's going on, like, which is not to say that you shouldn't let, you know, the reporting inform your story, but I I hate going in and asking uninformed questions or, you know, talking to experts and not having looked them up in advance. So I really try to do a lot of prep work. Um, That said, a lot of that got blown up uh, with this story because uh, the pandemic was just moving so quickly. And so, you know, I knew early on that I wanted to do a story about global vaccine equity. But what that would look like meant basically trying to predict where the pandemic was going to be eight months down the road, which uh, if I could do that, (laughs) I'd probably have a different job. Um, So, Instead of pitching, you know, specific characters or specific ways of reporting, I tried to approach this as looking at kind of almost story archetypes. So, like, I I pitched early on that I wanted um, a country that could demonstrate um, the issue with the donation system. Um, I wanted a, a story or a country that could um, show uh, the issue of of uh, vaccine geopolitics and how that was kind of being influenced. And so, for each of those, I I gave kind of like lists of countries. I'm like, well, it might be Mexico or it might be. Guatemala or it might be, you know, whatever, but, um, kind of with the asterisks that I knew this was totally going to change. And so, um, the awards committee to their, to their credit, I did get this through the James Travers foundation. Um, you know, I pitched this a few weeks went by, they came back to me and said, Hey, we love this story. We think it's great. Your pitch is already a little out of date. Can you update it? And I was like, Yeah, absolutely can do that. So I did that. Um, That second pitch, of course, was very quickly itself out of date. And so it meant just kind of constantly uh, re-updating what I envisioned the story to be. Even when I got into the reporting phase, like I said, I had two days notice I was going to Angola. Then I went to Namibia and South Africa. I was literally on a plane out of namibia when omicron was announced and that i mean torpedoed my version of of the story yet again um because that really pushed us into a new phase of the pandemic so i mean this was a story that had to be reimagined and reimagined and reimagined and reimagined i probably wrote about 10 stories you know or 10 stories worth of words um before we got to that kind of final version
1: yeah and i guess maybe if you could speak a little bit more about kind of your approach doing a long form piece about a story where the information is changing so rapidly like how much of an influence did that breaking daily news affect your your end product
2: it, it did a fair bit um i mean it, like it, it it was almost a, a a blessing and a curse, because on the one hand, you know, because when I pitched this story initially back in early 2021, I remember people being like, do you think global vaccine equity is going to be a problem a year from now? And I was like, I don't I don't think we're going to fix this a year from now. So I I think that'll be fine. And so I think by the time the end of the year rolled away, everyone was like, oh, right. This is a big thing. So it was very newsy. But at the same time, things were, um, you know, constantly changing and being updated. And so. I think what ended up being important was being able to identify some of those common themes. And so um, you know, donations, um, even though Omicron changed, I was in Angola pre-Omicron, even though that has really changed things for them, but the center idea of donations didn't really shift for them. Uh, The idea of intellectual property, again, was still relevant. uh, And the idea of geopolitics, the Omicron thing really, I think, um, made that more urgent, but didn't change the central issue. And so having a really solid understanding of what kind of the core principles of my story were helped, even if it meant that the examples and the interviews and, you know, a lot of the reporting around it had to change. I mean, I have so many good interviews and videos and and stuff from South Africa and from Angola that didn't make it in because Omicron really shifted things, which broke my reporter's heart. But I mean, at the end of the day, you really have to kind of make sure that you're telling the story that that's forward looking. You have to be flexible.
1: Yeah and I'm just curious like were most of those interviews done or like scouted before you left or was that kind of a mixture of both when you were kind of finding people uh, in Angola in South Africa while you were there?
2: It was definitely a mix of both. Um, I had some really good conversations with, for example, the head of Afrogen before I went to South Africa, um, a, a guy uh, with vaccines for Africa. I'd had a little bit of discussion with people in Angola before I went. Um, I talked to some people in Namibia, though I actually didn't end up using any of my reporting from Namibia. Um, and so I had a good sense, like I would talk to them and say, okay, what do you think of the story is? What What do you feel uh, people need to know um, to of?" Come- them uh, inform uh, my knowledge but then once I got there there was a lot of wandering around and talking to people and, and kind of being open to what I heard from from people on the ground um, I got to say too that you know local reporters I had a translator in Angola um, I was in contact with a former reporter in South Africa who is was, who was very helpful but um, I mean there's almost nothing you can learn as a Western reporter being in a country for a week or two weeks that someone who lives there doesn't know A thousand times better. And so um, respecting local knowledge, being open to that um, is a really important part of the process.
1: Yeah. And I know you mentioned that your translator helped you out a lot while you were in Angola. Um, What was kind of his role while you were there?
2: So he, he's himself a journalist uh, in Angola. And so, you know, he I hired him initially just, just as a translator. They speak Portuguese in Angola, which is not a language I have any background in. Um, but I think sometimes people think of, of translators as just kind of like little robots that you know, they'd take in words in one language and kind of spit out words in another. But I mean, he was fantastically useful just in terms of like, you know, we'd go into a building and he'd be like, oh, this used to be owned by this company, and then it happened to this. Or he'd give me context on on the ministers or on the people that we were meeting. Um, I ended up getting stuck in Angola a couple of extra days because of PCR tests traveling during a pandemic, the best. And so I really wanted to go on a tour of Luanda, but that's not really a thing in Luanda. They don't really have a, a tourism uh, <laughs> industry, I guess. And so I called my translator and I was like, hey, can you take me on a tour? And he was like, what? And I was like, just let's just drive around and see what you think is is interesting. And so I really wanted to go to the kind of classic uh, touristy, touristy things in Luanda. But he was like, no, let's go see this cultural center. Or let's go talk to this person. Or And it ended up being just a really interesting introduction um, to a city through his eyes based on what he thought was important and what an outsider needed to know. And so, I mean, it just goes beyond so much more than words. Um, This sort of reporting really honestly couldn't be done without uh, the expertise of of local reporters. And I think any reporter who goes in who doesn't listen to them or doesn't take their their cues um, is is doing themselves a disservice.
1: Was he helping at all with like finding sources or um, was that something that you kind of did on your own? Cool.
2: Um, he was a little bit in the sense that we would like wander around at vaccine clinics and, and you know approach people and um, talk to them and, and he'd sometimes have suggestions for like um, what. Uh, questions I should ask, um, or like we did a, an interview with uh, the head of the WHO in Angola and he was he tacked on a few questions of his own because he had another story that he was working on and but the questions that the, the answers that came out I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Maybe I should uh, <laughs> look into that as well. Um, so it, it ended up being, I think I was guiding things, but he he really had his own thoughts and, and was a, a big part of the process.
1: Was there any talk with like your editorial team about crediting, maybe crediting him more than a translator, or is that something that was kind of out of your hands? We,
2: we had, I'm not sure that we would have credited cause I, how we would normally do it is uh, we either credit as a co-byline, but that's typically someone who's had a, a big say in kind of how the story was shaped. Um, the files from is usually when someone kind of wrote a chunk and then contributed to your story. Um, and so I, I'm not sure either of those would have been appropriate. That said, like we credited him as a translator, but I worry that when a reader sees that, they just think that, oh, they just, you know, translated a few words or, or just helped, um, you know, just on a language side of things. So I almost wish we a either had like a a more expansive uh, understanding of what translators do or B like some sort of like in between explanation. Like, I just think because fixers and translators have been uh, treated as as being uh, not helpful or not integral to the process i think people discount their role um but i don't know that we have a great way of explaining what they do that's a good question though like i don't know whether do you add a note do you add an essay about how the reporting worked and credit them there i don't know i but yeah i think that's a good question of how you um explain what what they gave to the story
1: yeah fair enough um yeah and also you said because you wrote a little personal essay once you returned and in it you said I was retrospectively the walking embodiment of my story a privileged westerner who had been vaccinated months earlier and had parachuted into a country to ask people face to face what it felt like to not have had the same good fortune so I'm just wondering if you can speak more on kind of your awareness of that kind of aspect of parachuting into these countries while you were there And like, if whether or not you had any reservations before, before going.
2: Yeah. Like, I mean, like, you know, that, that sentence you just read, I've never had a situation like this where my own personal situation so clearly, um, echoed uh, the story that I was writing. And it just, it felt uncomfortable to go up to someone and and say basically that, you know, what is it like to not be vaccinated? I love being vaccinated. Like it just, it felt very greasy. And so trying to have those conversations in a way that felt authentic and in a way that allowed people to actually speak freely felt difficult. I mean, the other part of it too, is that, um, you know, particularly in Angola, the vaccines had been donated by Canada. And so I, I felt like there was a real, um, people felt pressure, I think, or this is how I interpreted it, um, felt pressure to express gratefulness for the vaccines or to kind of impress on me that they weren't going to waste. Cause as a Canadian, they really wanted to say, Hey, you know, we are, we are, you know, taking advantage of this donation that we've been given. And, and I don't, doubt that they were trying very very hard um, to to get those vaccines out that felt really authentic to me but at the same time it really reinforced this kind of global charity model where not only do you have to wait for donations from canada but then you have to you know be grateful for it and make sure people know that you you know that you're really lucky to have it and so it just kind of felt a little bit uncomfortable um, just in the sense that you know I, I it, it made me very aware of my privilege here. Like, I think, you know, there's a lot of talk about people, you know, being neutral in their reporting and, and not inserting themselves into it. But I didn't have a choice here. I was part of it, whether I wanted to or not. And my presence You know was seen through that lens and so um yeah I don't know that I have a perfect answer here but I think it's something that reporters have to think about like you can't it's a luxury to be like well I'm just not going to insert myself into it because sorry in cases like this you are part of it um your question about reservations I mean we've we've heard an increasing amount of criticism in recent years about reporters parachuting in. And for very fair reasons, I think uh, it's it's very fair to be critical of a reporter like myself, who was literally speed reading a book on Angola on the plane uh, because I'd had so little notice that I was going. And so it's very fair to be like, well, you know, what do you know about Angola? And You're very correct. I don't know a whole lot. I was very dependent on on people being able to explain things to me and kind of doing very, very quick research. I do think the advantage of having a Canadian reporter go, though, is I may not know Angola, but I know the Canadian audience. And so I know what the conversation around vaccines has been like here. I know the fact that Canadians like to think of themselves as a country that helps others, that does what it says it's going to do on the global stage. And so I think it's fair um, for a Canadian reporter to to look at the story through that lens. Okay, Canada says it's it's doing all these great things. Is it though? And, and that's a story I think that um, in some ways demands that Canadian perspective that holding um, Canada to task. So am I the best person to write about, you know, a deep dive on Angola? No, but I think I am positioned to write a story about whether Canada is meeting its Uh, obligations to angola
1: um i'm just gonna switch gears a little bit here um so graphic elements in all three parts of your uh, series was kind of very important to me in terms of informing the narrative Mm -hmm. so i'm just kind of curious what your relationship with the data and graphics team was throughout this whole process
0: Mm.
2: You know, we had a good relationship and I just want to give a shout out to, I mean, the whole Toronto Star Graphics team is fantastic. Um, Andres Plana, though, is the guy who did the coding on this project in particular. Um, he's fantastic Uh what he can do <laughs> with graphics. I don't understand it, but it's it's very cool. Um, so our our relationship was, you know, we had a conversation at the beginning about what was the story we wanted to tell? What did we want readers to take away? And also, what were the data sources uh, that we were going to use? Because it, what data we could use, what was fair to use, um, and and what would give the right kind of, you know, uh, story, I guess, or takeaway for readers was kind of a question. And so once, once we had that kind of common ground established, he went away and said, OK, I've looked at the numbers. Here's, you know, 10 different things I could do to, um, you know, try to illustrate certain points. We went back and forth about what might make the work the best. He made some graphics. We looked how it looked at with the words. Um, so, yeah, it was very much a kind of an open conversation about how we marry graphics and, and words uh, and how they could kind of work together in the final project.
1: So, yeah, I guess maybe if you can maybe just take me through that a little bit more, just like how did you decide uh, what was worth using in terms of kind of informing the narrative?
2: Yeah. So a lot of this was um, driven by what was possible (laughs) rather than, you know, maybe what we would have done in an ideal world. Um, You'll notice, for example, in the story, there's very few uh, comparisons of case data or death data, Um, which is not to say that wouldn't have been very useful to a reader. Personally, I would have liked to know that myself. Uh, But how those numbers are reported in various countries are so different, it really wouldn't have been Fair to compare, say, death rates in Angola versus Canada. Um, because how they're being recorded is just so different that it's it's largely meaningless. I do, in hindsight, wish I'd maybe addressed that point or explained it in the story because I had a lot of people then email me and be like, "Well, the death rate in Angola is very low, and the case rate is also very low, and this isn't really an issue, and they don't need vaccines." And da 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 da, da. And yes, I understand that Angola publishes case rates, and that if you Google, you know, our world and data will will give you something, but. Um, I've spoken to a lot of people who measure these sorts of things, and they feel that there is very likely that much of the world is hugely undercounting just because they don't have the capacity uh, to be testing and to be recording deaths. You know, after H1N1, we discovered that, you know, tons of people had died in Africa that we uh, hadn't counted during the pandemic. And that is the expectation here that we will eventually discover that lots more people died um, than were initially counted. And so we didn't do any of that. We probably shouldn't have explained it. We didn't, Um, but what we did use um, primarily is data from UNICEF. Uh, So UNICEF was tasked with delivering all of the donated vaccines around the world. And so because they're kind of one central organization doing this for the whole world, they have really good data on like where vaccines are going how many have been donated? How many have been pledged? All that kind of stuff, and it's it's very accessible. It's very available data, uh, and so that was one of our primary sources uh, in terms of that picture of of you know who was pledging uh, donations versus who was actually delivering them.
1: Yeah, that's great. Yeah, the graphics were a great addition for myself at least uh, to the piece. Um, Now, you said you pitched the story through the James Travers Fellowship. Um, For folks who may not know, can you maybe take me through what it is and maybe just the importance of the fellowship for this piece?
2: They are a uh, foundation, they're based out of Ottawa, out of the J School there, Um, but it's done in memory of a journalist named James Travers, uh, also known as Jim Travers, um, who he was an editor, he was a columnist, he was a foreign correspondent uh, for a long time, Uh, you know, just kind of a lion of journalism um, in Ottawa and and in Canada, really. And so um, he has passed away now, and so his family um, has created this fellowship to try to um, continue that tradition of overseas reporting, particularly now when you know so little of it is being done by Canadian reporters um, because that was really his ethos was that um, you know Canadian reporters need to be overseas to be, you know, bearing witness to some of the things that uh, the Canadian government or, or is doing abroad or, or just, you know, major events that are happening in other countries. And so they're really working to facilitate these projects. And so um, you can apply, I believe uh, applications are, are open now for this year. Um, but you, you can do any sort of project that you want. Um, it just has to be for a Canadian audience. Um, but the reporting done in another country. And so typically, they fund a project for $25,000. Um, the year I did it, uh, for the first time, they split it uh, between two of us. I think that probably had to do with uh, pandemic concerns and, and uh, fears that we may not be able to travel at all, um, but typically it's $25,000. Um, and then uh, whatever the final project is, um, is typically published in a Canadian outlet.
1: Lastly, I just kind of want to go through your journey as a journalist. Um, I know you said you grew up at Edmonton, correct?
2: I did, yes.
1: So when did you kind of decide that journalism was something you wanted to pursue?
2: Uh, um, I was, uh, I took a, I took the scenic route, I guess. Um, I did not know early on. I know lots of people know when they're children. I did not. Um, you know, I, I grew up, uh, playing sports, uh, reading a lot, but not being particularly on, on, uh, journalism's radar. I did an undergrad, worked in tourism for a while, traveled, uh, lived in the mountains. And, you know, I, I remember being at my tourism job and I loved it. It was really fun. But when I had downtime I would sit and read the news, like just obsessively read the news. And I was just fascinated uh, by what was going on, even though I lived in this tiny little mountain town where, you know, global events weren't exactly coming to come into town very often. But I was just fascinated by it. And actually I just kind of went from that to I could do that. I think I could, I I could write these stories. Um, I wish it was a more sophisticated process than that. It really wasn't. I started applying to uh, journalism schools, um, went to Carleton in Ottawa, um, really wanted to work in radio. Uh, But my first job out of uh, J school was in TV. Did that for a couple of years, uh, got laid off, uh, panicked, got a job at a newspaper, wasn't really qualified. Not sure how I got hired a newspaper, Um, but that became, that was Metro, that became star metro that we eventually got laid off again that became the star um and so it's it's it has been a yeah an uneven journey i guess but i i've tried to stay open to new opportunities um tried to out learn anything i can it's really important to me to keep developing my skills keep learning new things um and it's it's led me i guess in interesting places if if unexpected places
1: Yeah. So I guess just in the future, are there some stories that you'd kind of like to tell um, going forward?
2: Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, there's big categories that are going to be big. I think climate change is going to be, it's going to be the next COVID, I think, and that it's going to be part of every beat. Um, I I think... um, The transition out of the pandemic is going to be a huge story that uh, hopefully we're going to be able to tell uh, or start telling relatively soon. Yeah, I guess just too, and I I personally am really excited by a lot of stuff happening in startup media right now. I'm really watching some of these little guys that are starting to pop up. And so when I look at the future of journalism, I, I, I'm thinking, I think, not necessarily always about what the stories are, but who's telling them and how. Um, and I think there's some interesting stuff happening on the horizon.
1: And that's the end of the fifth episode of our season. Pull Quotes is published by The Review of Journalism at X University. Our show hosts are Gabe Oatley and Rahaf Farawi. Our podcast team also includes Annika Foreman and myself, Andrew Oliphant. Technical and audio support is provided by Angela Glover and web support by Lindsay Hanna. Our executive producer is Sonia Fata. And the music is by Harrison Ammer. Join us in about 10 days for our next episode. Take care.